I think at the end of the day, researchers had had such a hard time getting a seat at the table and for the job not to be diminished to, you know, you just talk to users, that they fear that this will actually happen if we try to democratize research, that people will say, oh, actually, anyone can do it. It's very easy. But I think the, the reality of it is it will give a taste of what it really means for people mm. to be more research-centric and more user-centric. And that mm. will actually empower the teams to uh, validate and value research much more. This is Aaron May. I'm John Henry Forster. And this is awkward. Silence. Silence. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Awkward Silences. Today we have Jonathan Wadowski. He is the founder and CEO of Maze, a tool probably many of you have used. Uh, we're so excited to have you here today, Jonathan, to talk about how to scale and democratize research within an organization. Hot topic, big topic, good one to uh, dig into early in this fine new year we see ourselves in. So Joe, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm very excited to have this chat with both of you as well. I think it means top of mind for everyone. And we've seen a lot of talk and chat around what it means to democratize that there's advocates and non-advocates. So I'm, I'm excited to dig in. Excellent. JH is here too. Yeah, hot topic. And I think just personally, like we've had a lot of fun playing around the maze tool. So it's always cool to talk to people <laughs> behind the tools that we are playing around with on our side. So um, kind of a cool combo for me. All right. So let's dig in. You know, let's zoom out first because democratization, it does not happen in a vacuum. So what is the context in which we're seeing these trends happen? What is kind of the current state of research? And, you know, what's driving this trend of democratization mm -hmm. within research within organizations? Yeah, I think what we saw is that the reality of how orgs have evolved is that the research and the research department hasn't really scaled the same way that today the design and the development departments have evolved. So we see that the ratio remains pretty imbalanced, where you have ratios of roughly one researcher for five designers and then five to 50 uh, for designers to meet to developers. And so what that ultimately translates into is that the capacity for teams to build is 50x the capacity for teams to learn. Because at the end of the day, your capacity to learn is limited to what your researchers can do, right? Mm -hmm. And so we talk to a lot of people, we talk to people at Google and different companies, and what we see is that they have this kind of massive backlog that researchers have to handle. And so it leads to them having to uh, either cut out decision, meaning the teams are led on their own to make those decisions, or they have to overwork to get those decisions actually done. So the democratization I think comes from that. It comes at first from the investment that product teams are making in building and scaling research departments. So the question becomes, how do we solve more and more decisions that need to be made daily when the research department is not scaling at the same pace that the, the building, let's say, department is scaling? I think that's where the democratization comes from. Well, and why why aren't research teams scaling, right? So like, let's not take that at face value. Like one solution here would just be to scale research teams. Is that not happening or should that be happening? Like why? Think, yeah. Yeah, I think it should be happening. I think it will be happening in the future. I mean, we've seen the same thing for design. And I think that the very interesting parallel, in my opinion, is we saw how design have exploded in the past five years, right? It used to be, I mean, I come from a design background on my end. I used to be called just designer, right? And then... And then you see the, the sophistication that starts to evolve, right? We go from designer to UX and UI designer to more sophistication in even the nomenclature of the roles. And tools also empower for this conversation to happen. So in the past, when teams were using software that were just meant for designers, like a sketch of this world that were not collaborative, 
design was limited to the design department. What Figma really achieved is creating conversations inside the whole organization around design. And then that led to an expansion of design inside organization and expansion of the design roles inside organization. Because mm -hmm. all of a sudden, design was no longer a designer conversation. It was an everyone conversation. Mm -hmm. And so I think we can see the same playbook happening for mm -hmm. research, where research right now is very limited to the research department, almost a black box within the organization. How do we make sure that research conversation is something that happens everywhere in the org? Okay, so it sounds like maybe two things are true here, right? So research organizations do need to scale to support the, the kind of building teams, as you suggested. But mm -hmm. we're using kind of this democratization thing as somewhat of a stopgap maybe in between, but there's also value in it. And we think some of that's going to persist. Is that kind of like your general view of the world at the moment? Exactly. Exactly. That's, uh, that's a good summary. I think that at the end of the day, research department will need to scale. For it to happen, we need to build a case around research becoming a conversation for everyone. And I think that if we look at the past 10 years, so that happened in design, but more closely to research, that also happened, for example, in data and data analysis, right? Mm -hmm, you look at mm -hmm. the state of data analysis 10 years ago, and you had small, limited data analysts within an organization. That was a small BI department. And then tools like Amplitude, Mixpanel, they came in, and they made the data conversation something that happened everywhere, right? Because all of a sudden, data was self-serve for everyone. Everyone could have a chat around the data. And that led to, A, growing the BI teams inside organization, because the value was seen and perceived by the management teams, by everyone within the org but also that made the conversation around data much, much more natural within the organization. So we see that for data, we saw that for design. I think the next logical step is for it to happen in research. Yeah, mm. we talk about that a lot internally, this kind of parallel of, you know, analytics or quantitative insights and qualitative insights and going from it being the black box decentralized, I, I don't have any idea how I'm going to find what this user did. I need to ask this other team to, I can find now. And Obviously, what you're seeing going along with that is like data literacy, right? You know, in the exactly. past, it's like, well, yeah, you can access the data, but you don't know what it means. <laughs> kind of can be a dangerous tool, right? And so you're starting to see more data literacy crop up and you know, hopefully qualitative uh, insights and research will will go the same way. Why is this happening, right? Like, so you talked a little bit about there's many more engineers, there's a huge capacity to build, but why are we seeing research become so central in organizations? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I think that um, what's happening is in the world of the future, there will be there will be winners. And those winners look like the companies that build with their customers, right? They are the ones that actually build with their users. And so what's interesting is there's multiple studies that have been run around what is the real business value of design and what what is the real business value of research, right? And we saw the McKinsey piece in 2019 that was about what is the ROI of investing in design? Can we actually quantify this ROI? And what they saw was that it was a very strong strategic investment to invest in design. And so because it was proven, then we can see the shift that's happening. We can see that the organization now are investing much more inside this design and the next logical step for them to understand better the users and deliver the best product for those users is to expand research as well in the organization. So I think it's just the natural occurrence of the market understanding that building with, with and for your users is the best way to build product and to build software that people will use. And to, to go back to the comparisons that, you know, with data analytic tools and, and design tools, it feels like now it's sort of accepted that those things have been a net positive, right? By everyone mm -hmm. having access to data and mixed panel amplitude, whatever it may be, or, or being able to comment and, and make things in Figma, we're seeing this collaboration and this literacy and all of these things that, that are positive. But there are, you know, 
concerns there as well, right? Like you could make yeah. the wrong inferences from data if you're not well trained in it, or if you're not an actual designer and you're going in there trying to play designer, you can you know create bad experiences. And I think we're at a stage in research where I hear those fears or those concerns pretty loudly right now because we haven't gotten over this hump or we haven't gone through this transition. And it's a lot of like, well, there's a craft to doing research. And if you're not trained in that craft, you're not going to do good research. And I'm curious, how do you think about that part? Is that just like part of the evolution? Or is there something different about research that needs to be considered as this happens? So it's interesting. I think that is, this has happened every time democratization as a world has come up in every space. You look at Webflow at the time and people were saying, hey, not everyone should be a developer. And it was the same for Figma. It's the same every time democratization happened. But I think those fears come from a place of there needs to be literacy around how you run these processes. I think there's a fear also of replacement almost, right? Just like developers at the time could have feared that Webflow really replaced their job. The same fear that's happening for researchers saying, well, what does it mean to democratize research? Does it mean that everyone can be a researcher? And I think it's very different from saying democratization of research is very different from saying replacing researchers. I think it's more of an evolution of the role that we need to embrace which is that at the end of the day, the researchers won't be able to take on every decision that happened within the org. And so their role has to shift from a role that's tactical, running the research, to a role that's educational, which is how do I help every team to run their own research? And we work very closely with um, uh, Bezod Sergeni, who was the, the head of research at, at Slack and Facebook. Mm-hmm. And that was his role there, right? His role was entirely, how do I teach team? How do I help them and, and uh, provide the right resources for them to be able to A, create great tests and create great research and B, analyze the data that comes out of this. So I think it's the just the natural evolution of the role is that just like BI teams help teams understand the data for themselves, the researcher role will have to evolve as well. So the fear is legitimate, but every time this has happened, it has been proven to be a void fear because at the end of the day, it actually empowers researchers to expand within the organization. It actually makes research more visible within the organization. Yeah, you can fear the technology, but it, it's not, you know, going away. I, I'm yeah. glad you brought up Webflow. That's where big Webflow fans here at User Interviews. And I think, mm-hmm. like, I can use Webflow. I think JH and I built our blog in a day, maybe two, <laughs> four years okay, ago. Yeah. And it wasn't, wow. like, the most beautiful blog in the entire world, <laughs> but it functioned, and it wasn't terrible, and got us through a year before we got, you know, a real designer to help us out. But that's sort of the point, is that, we can use Webflow, we can make, create value with it, but someone who knows what they're doing can use it a lot better. And I think people get so amped up about tools and afraid of tools that mm-hmm. it's going to take their job or diminish the craft in some way that this, exactly like, like this tool dares to make it easier for me to do my <laughs> job, you know, like that, exactly. that's so scary. And, you know, you also mentioned Figma and I think What that does is it makes it easier for designers to design, like good designers who can actually design, Mm -hmm. right? But then it makes it easier for everyone else to be part of it too. And that's what we're really talking about, right? It's Mm -hmm. not saying now everyone's a designer, but now everyone's part of the design conversation. Exactly. And Dylan Field says it all the time, right? He always says Figma didn't make everyone a designer, but it made design happen everywhere within the Mm office. And I think that's the beauty of it, right? That's really what they unlocked is that design becomes central to the office. So... What we're trying to achieve at May, and I'm sure what you're trying to achieve as well, is how do we make research more central to the organization as well at the end of the day? Yeah, no, I think what we're describing here is like it's it's a cool kind of like t- counterintuitive trend, right? Where by giving this stuff away to some degree or making it more inclusive and, and accepting some of the risk and trade-offs that come with that, you actually make your organization more research fluent and more bought into research. 
And then in this kind of unexpected way, your role as a researcher is much more valued, right? So it's like, it doesn't maybe exactly. seem like the obvious path to get there, but you're saying that we've seen that in other uh, disciplines and there's a good reason to believe that's going to be the trend that plays out here. Exactly. And, and I think that makes sense, right? Like the fear is legitimate because I think at the end of the day, researchers had had such a hard time getting a seat at the table and for them not for the job not to be diminished to, you know, you just talk to users, that they feel that this will actually happen if we try to democratize research, that people will say, oh, actually, anyone can do it. It's very easy. But I think the, the reality of it is people, it will give a taste of what it really means for people mm. to be more research-centric and more user-centric. And that mm. will actually empower the teams to uh, validate and value research much more. All right, a quick awkward interruption here. It's fun to talk about user research, but you know what's really fun? is doing user research, and we want to help you with that. We want to help you so much that we have created a special place. It's called userinterviews.com slash awkward for you to get your first three participants free. We all know we should be talking to users more, so we went ahead and removed as many barriers as possible. It's going to be easy. It's going to be quick. You're going to love it. So get over there and check it out. And then when you're done with that, go on over to your favorite podcasting app and leave us a review, please. I mean, with research, the proof's in the pudding, right? This is a, a popular topic too. Like, how are you making impact? How are you showing you're making impact? And whoever is using research to make good decisions will have that seat at the table, whether they're a full-time researcher or not, you know, whether you're doing the research or taking advantage of someone else's research, right? That's who's going to, I think, own research and organizations, it's people doing and using research to make impactful decisions. Exactly. And, and. We also come from a place where user research is very mentally loaded. When we started made what, what we saw from customers was research was perceived as, you know, a slow and expensive, you needed to have a lab, you know, all of these things that people associate with that was blocking them from even getting started. So by removing some of the barrier to entry for people to actually get started with research, get a taste of research, meaning giving them the tool to just empower people in the product team to be able to run those. It creates this, this value that in the future, people will hire more researchers. It, it will help them basically understand more of the value of research. For companies that wouldn't have done that if they didn't have access to tools and software that would unlock the value early on. Yeah. To, to come at this from maybe a little bit of a different angle, because I do think we're using kind of analytics and design as some adjacent disciplines, you know, pull lessons out of. But those things do feel a little different than research in some ways, right? So I'm thinking about like analytics. I'm not an analyst. I go and I spend a few hours, you know, creating a report or pulling something out. It's pretty easy for somebody who's more trained in that field to come and look at my work, maybe spend, you know, 10, 15 minutes going through it and, and kind of see if it passes the smell test, right? Like, oh, you did this well, or, oh, you messed up mm -hmm. the causation, right? Or whatever. Similar with design of I'm going to go try to play designer and make a prototype or whatever. And a true designer could come look at that pretty quickly after I've spent some hours on it and be like, hey, you missed some of these edge states or this prototype isn't set up correctly, but it doesn't take them the same amount of time to review. Whereas research, it feels a little bit more nebulous. Like I go out and I just talk to people and I don't know what I'm doing. And I'm like, I'm doing research. It feels a little harder for the researcher to come in and, and assess whether or not I did a, did a good job with it, right? Like they almost need to like watch that whole conversation back. And like, was I leading? Did I go in the wrong direction? Like how do researchers do that part? Because the craft of research feels a little bit like more nebulous than maybe how explicit the skill of like design or analytics is. I don't know if that makes sense, but you see what no, I get it at? Does. It does. I like the angle. I think that's where the educational part comes in, both providing the resources for people to ask the right questions and reviewing the, the script before actually going in and running these interviews. And then, as you said, probably helping on how to interpret the data and, and run a smell test. I think that at the end of the day, 
everything can be taught on how to run interviews for everyone if you have the right features, which means that you still need the researchers to be able to run those smell check and, and make sure that uh, this is working for you all. Okay, yeah. So maybe a good way to think about it is in some of those other disciplines, you can do the review at the end, like let people go off and do what they want. And, and then someone can come in and check it. In research, it might be the opposite, where it's really important to have that alignment and review up front before people go off and run and try to do their own thing. Is that maybe a good way to like it, think of it? Yeah, it's an excellent way. And I know, for example, again, to take the wizard example that Facebook and Slack, what they did was they created this massive database of questions and how to ask questions. And so they had this uh, almost, uh, let's call it the research system on how to ask questions, how to not lead questions. And that helped a lot, right? Because all of a sudden, anyone that really wanted to get involved into any form of research had the resources to actually go out and which was really empowering for the teams as well. Cool. And is this the type of thing you're doing at Maze? Like I know we, in the warm up we talked a little bit about like some of the testing frameworks you use in the team and stuff. Like, have you found good ways to handle this approach within your own team? Yeah. So multiple things. So at Maze as a product, I think what's interesting is that because we run unmoderated, there are moments of collaboration before tests go out live for researchers to actually review, right? And because there's less actual face-to-face -face conversation, there's, there's also, it's also less likely that the test would go wrong if someone comes in and have the capacity to review the test before it goes out. So that's what we do. We created collaboration at the moment of creation of test to mm -hmm. allow for teams to review the test together before they, they actually send it out. Mm -hmm. And then the second thing that's interesting is that in our team, but also as a product, because anyone is empowered to run this, this research, we also have to educate. And so for us, that translates into multiple things. On one end, we create content on how to run this, this research and, and that people can read, but also we productize it, right? So that translates into creating templates for people to use so that even if you don't know really how to ask the right questions, we provide you with the templates for you to ask the right questions. And then in more sophisticated team, what we do is we allow you to create, right? So the researcher will come in, we'll create this database of questions that the teams can then use to run their own unmoderated tests and research at scale. So it sounds like you've created a lot of templates and resources for folks to use. How do you get people to actually use them or train <laughs> them or find them when they need them? Because I always think about that with any kind of internal, you know, education or enablement. Are people using it? How do you get them to use it? Yeah. So we have kickoff sessions with, so we have mm -hmm. a internal researchers that made, we have kickoff session where the researcher will walk people through the content and then the templates themselves are embedded in the tools, right? So for us, it's very easy because at the end of the day, we see where they get started from a project that used or didn't use our template, but it's, it's actually easier to get started from a template that, than not. So people have no incentive not yeah, to do it. Right. Right. <laughs> right, 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 right. And so when new people join, do you, is this part of onboarding, right? Like is everyone doing research or just certain departments? Specifically the product teams. So specifically the designers, the product managers, the product marketers, which are the ones that need to make product decisions. So yeah, those one is, it's part of the onboarding basically. So it's part of the mm -hmm. onboarding playbook that we mm -hmm. have, that they review these documents. We actually ask for the team to read our whole blog as part of the onboarding as well, so that mm -hmm. they mm -hmm. also have context on how this is empowering our users, how other people are using it so that they get a clear picture of not only how do we run it, but also how people have been running it using both our platform and other, other methods. So I know you have different folks, you know, involved in research. You mentioned the product teams, you've got product management, design, you've got product marketing. I'm curious how it's evolved to what do these different teams do? Like who's doing research, who's receiving research? How are these different kind of functions involved with what democratization looks like at Maze now? Yeah, that's a good question. So. <clears throat> The way we structure that made is that we have different pods that will own different parts of the product and they are all empowered to own their own research. So ultimately 
the business risk of the feature is owned by the researcher. So they will be the one actually owning what is the risk for the business as we build this mm. feature. Then it's passed mm -hmm. on to the value risk for the PMs. Mm -hmm. And then finally for the designers. So generally the, the product managers, they take care of the value risk. So are pe do people actually want this? Is there a problem that we're trying to solve? And then is the solution we are ideating on, is it the right solution for the problem we're trying to solve for? So they own both those risks. And in both cases, they will A, run interviews with users that we believe to be the right person to talk to. And they will also run an underrated studies to validate hypotheses that they discovered through these qualitative studies that they're running. Then when it's passed on, when the, the, the value risk is assessed and uh, validated, we can pass it on to the design team. And the design team will own the usability risk of the picture or the, mm -hmm. the, the thing mm -hmm. that we're building. And so they will be empowered to run their own unmoderated study for testing their prototype, testing their design, they're trying to build. And then the product marketers, it's interesting because we see more and more of those product marketers, uh, both using our platform, but also at Maze running the, those tests, testing the copy. It's a big part of the usability, but people generally do it in two steps. So they test the copy, they state the value proposition, they test the feature's name, uh, which is what we get made as well for every feature that we build. So that's how we kind of uh, cut out the different parts of the research for us. Nice. You described sort of three levels there, business risk, value risk, usability risk, and kind mm -hmm. of who's responsible for each. The last two I've, I'm more familiar with. I'm curious, when you say business risk, what are like examples of uh, the types of questions or the things you're trying to understand or mitigate at that stage? Yeah, so generally it's either a market for what we think is a problem, right? So we'll evaluate a problem that we want to solve at an, organ at an organization level. So we want, let's say, more collaboration, right? So we'll say, okay, so how do we assess that the tools that we have today needs collaboration? And so the researcher, what they will do is they will go out, define different personas that we believe to be potential hy strong hypotheses for collaboration. And then we will reach out to them both qualitatively and then through made uh, quantitatively to understand if the problem exists for them. So We'll try to stack rank the problem, basically, like how big of a problem this is to you to, for you today. How would you, how much would you invest in this problem today if we were to solve it? And that helps us understand if people actually, before we get to assessing if we can ideate a solution for it. It really changes the sort of tenor of the research. If you have a researcher kind of on the hook for like, I'm going to put my stamp on, this is a good business decision to do this. I like everyone having some skin in the game in a business, right? Yeah. You know, you talked a little bit about like using some of the templates you've created within the, within your product and how much, I guess, how much some of your process of democratization, your own research and collaborating on your research has informed how you've built Maze. Has that happened <laughs> a lot along the way? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we always see the limitation with what we do. You know, even collaboration, the hypothesis came from us collaborating on creating the test and the research. And we thought, how can we solve this for ourselves before that? That's how we basically created the hypothesis for it. And then quantitative and qualitative studies validated these. And that's how we came to actually build collaboration. And that's been the case for a lot of the things that we've been doing, which is it starts from a problem that we stumble upon while building. And then we try to validate that this problem actually happens for other teams and other scale and other industries using the product. <laughs> educated yeah. a lot on how yeah. the product evolved. And I'm sure it's yeah. been the same as you interview, right? Yeah, I was going to say, do you, do you find that as like a strength or a weakness or you're not sure? Because I feel like we catch ourselves often on my team saying things like, you know, you know, of course we're not our user, but we sort of are. <laughs> but like, you know, we use our product a lot and we are doing research. And yeah. so we have our own hypotheses based on our own usage of the product. And sometimes I think that's like a great strength to us because it's like we identify some little rough edges that we feel strongly about and we'll just clean up. And then other times it's like, we got to not just run away with our own ideas here. We need to go back and, and go and be more methodical. So I'm curious how that plays out for you all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we have a great customer experience team at Maze. And so their role is to actually get 
all of these IDs and feedback and try to map them to customer requests, to frustration from our customers that are listed in our NPS so that at the end of the day, we can have punches on what we need to build. And then they can actually benchmark against, against existing data and say, okay, so what you're saying, actually, no one really cares about it because no one has really <laughs> complained right. about this thing. The thing is that sometimes for some of these features, people won't voice the problem, right? They won't actually mm -hmm. say, this is a problem for me. So you actually have to go actively research for, for, for those problems to happen. So it's balancing that, right? It's balancing what you discover and then actually trying to validate it where the customer experiencing can be kind of a barrier saying, okay, this is, this is not a real problem. You're just making it up for yourself or getting access to those insights. And that's going to educate the hypothesis we're going to solve against. Yeah, good to have some counterbalances. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The check and balance of the customer experience team. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like when you run an experiment and a test, it's like we want to optimize for this outcome or metric, but we need to make sure we don't hurt these other things. And, you know, <laughs> exactly. Incidentally, kind of, yeah. Exactly. I'm just laughing because not that we do this, but you know, we're in the recruiting business. So it's like, oh, we can go find some users with that problem. No problem. <laughs> Somebody's got that problem. We'll go find Yeah, that's it. also but, true. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but yeah, we true. don't do that, of course. Um, Joe, you, uh, you switched. You said you were a designer and now you're leading a research company. What made you kind of expand or get excited about <laughs> UX research? What are you excited about in the future? Yeah, I think that what's extremely exciting is that as we said a bit early on, research is exploding, right? What we're seeing right now is just research is becoming something that every company is talking about. I think that what I'm excited about is that I believe that the future will be extremely user-centric, right? I think that companies understand more and more that they need to build with their users and that in the future, it will be seen as almost impossible that you don't validate things with your users the same way that today you won't push something to production if it hasn't been CI tested. So that's what excites me about research is that if we create the tools that empower and that allow this future to happen, then that's a massive success for all of us, right? Yeah. Yeah, totally. It feels like even just a couple of years from now, like two, three years in the future, the way that some of this stuff's going to be incorporated and like streamlined within teams, it's like, it's just hard to imagine, right? Like, I think we probably don't know all those ways yet. And mm -hmm. as we start to see them, it's gonna be really exciting to see what teams are able to come up with and, and how they incorporate this stuff. Exactly. And just like we said, I mean, I was a web designer 15 years ago, and now we, we had all these fancy titles. I think that seeing researchers and then UX researchers and quantitative researchers and qualitative and research ops exploding, it just it feels like the timing is right for research to evolve and mature and, and get to the place where it needs to be. Joe, thanks for joining us. This has been great. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, this is great. Thanks for listening to Awkward Silences, brought to you by User Interviews. Theme music by Fragile Gang. Editing and sound production by Carrie Boyd.